Thanks for downloading this University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland, from Magna Carta to the Present. This Irish Legal History Society conference took place in Christchurch Cathedral in November 2016. The event was organised to mark the 800th anniversary of the transmission of Magna Carta to Ireland. This episode features a paper by Colm Kenny from Dublin City University. His paper was entitled Myth, Mervyn and the Irish Magna Carta of 1662. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Thank you very much, James. It's an honour to be part of this very interesting conference, of which I'd like to uh, thank uh, again, as others have, Robert Marshall, the Academic Director, Thomas Moore and Peter Crooks, and others who have put so much work into it. The King's Inns today occupies a fine building that James Gandon designed for it. Adorning its facade are three scenes, and uh, they're in stone relief. Uh, they're sculpted about 1806 by... Edward Smith. There's one here over the dining hall entrance, one here over the registry of deeds entrance and central entablature there. Now, Gandon's account books, which are in the King's Inns, include payments to Smith for these, as you can see here, but no explanation of what the reliefs show, nor, as far as I can find, are the benchers' minute books or other records. The authors of the history of Dublin in 1818 thought that the central scene depicts the barons of England presenting a copy of Magna Carta to Queen Elizabeth. Well, I don't have to tell this audience, that's fairly meaningless. Uh, given that Elizabeth reigned centuries after Magna Carta was agreed between the barons and King John 1215, and she had also no connection with the founding of King's Inns in 1541, or being dead, its revival in 1607. Now, the sculptor Smith did execute a plaque of King John signing the Magna Carta, but that was erected in the round hole of the forecourts where fire destroyed it following the explosion there in 1922. Fortunately, drawings for those plaques survive. Um, They're the property of King's Inns, but they're on, as I understand, a permanent long-term loan, I should say, to the Irish Architectural Archive at present. They were the forecourts across the, the, the river here. They were in the round hole. Now, a related mystery also surrounds the motto chosen by King's Inns at the end of the 18th century. It's Nolumus Mutari, which, on best advice from Latin scholars, I'm told, insofar as it is possible Latin in its truncated form, may be taken to mean either we do not wish to change or we do not wish to be changed. Again, it's not known why the benches decided on this truncated version of a famous declaration made by the defiant barons of England at Merton 20 years after the signing of Magna Carta. King's Inns did without a motto for 250 years after its foundation in 1541 at uh, the, the site of a former Dominican friary just across at the only bridge, as Sean Duffy said, which was down the road here over where the forecourts are now. The end of the old Gaelic order was represented by Smith in another scene at the forecourts. Um, sorry, before I get to that, I just wanted to say that the, the Society's revival was in 1607 under Chief Justice James Lay. 
It flowed from the pacification of Ireland following the defeat of Gaelic forces. That's a portrait of Leigh and Lincoln's Inn. And the end of the old Gaelic order at this time was represented by Smith in another scene of the Four Courts, also destroyed in 1922. Here, James I dispenses copies of the Act of Oblivion, 1604, and the Contemporary Commission of Grace. One of Sir James Lay's fellow members of King's Inns was Sir John Davies, Attorney General of Ireland. I'm not aware of any portrait of him. I can't find one. If anybody knows of one, I'd be grateful. He became Speaker of the Irish House of Commons in 1613, when Protestants got control of that house controversially for the first time. Davies then defined Magna Carta as an ultimate signifier of royal authority in Ireland, and to him there was but one Magna Carta, the great charter of the ancient liberties of the English subjects, sent over by King John and King Henry III. When Davies spoke in 1613, only three years had elapsed since Parliament in Britain first cited Magna Carta in connection with the powers of the Crown there. It may be noted that Davies appears to have made no use of any term such as Ireland's Magna Carta to describe the copy of that charter sent to Dublin. During the half century before 1613, when Davies spoke among both antiquaries and lawyers in England, there had been a reawakening of interest in the Great Charter. But it was an interest fueled by romantic or mythical notions as much as by law or jurisprudence. What Magna Carta had actually meant in 1215 and what it signified years later might differ. Indeed, more than one document was in play. Of course, we saw that wonderful uh, graph this morning uh, of the wheel from the British Library showing the various versions. In, 13, in 1637, an inquiry from the Bishop of Derry elicited a legal opinion for the king referring to various editions of Magna Carta. Written for the Crown, that opinion concerned the ecclesiastical courts in both kingdoms, Britain and Ireland. So it's interesting reference back here perhaps to Peter Crooks mentioning that document in 1404 during the reign of Henry VIII and the reference to the Church of England and Ireland. Now, I won't dwell here on the significant ways in which Magna Carta was soon being cited in Ireland in respect to Lord Deputy Thomas Wentworth's administration. Both Catholic and Protestant members of Parliament invoked it against him. This is a great pic a portrait of my Van Dyke here with his dog. And indeed, by this time, that dog may not have been just Stafford's best friend. He may have been Stafford's only friend. <laughs> The dog, by the way, for a reason that will become relevant in a moment, I believe is of a breed called a Talbot, which is now very rare, but they were much loved in that period and had some special function on the battlefield. I don't know the full details of us. But it is worth saying, however, um, before passing on from that period, that they, it was being invoked in Ireland in 1641, a year before Edward Cook published the second part of his Institutes of the Laws, now, Cook, Cook had referred, of course, to Magna Carta quite a bit in London in the 1620s, but it was the volume of 1642, the second part of the Institutes, that would be very much about Magna Carta and has long influenced how the Charter has been seen. When the Irish Parliament in 1641 also proceeded against some of Wentworth's alleged allies, Audley Mervyn MP memorably claimed that these had left Magna Carta prostrated, besmeared and grovelling in her own gore. And he famously lamented Ireland's tragedy, the grey-headed common law's funeral. And we'll be back to Mervyn in a moment. 
representing, of course, a quite different constituency, as has been pointed out, uh, was uh, from, from that of the Protestant secular Audley Mervyn, was Patrick Darcy MP, a prominent lawyer with Gaelic roots, and he was also citing Magna Carta against the government. The Irish judges uh, were slow to become embroiled in the proceedings of Parliament, due not least, as they put it, to their great toil in their circuits, the last short vacation. The, uh, the judges clearly thought they were being overworked even in 1641. But in answering questions sent to them, they cited Magna Carta in respect to salvo contenimento and fines in terrorem. The proceedings taken by Parliament against Wentworth's men were partly a ploy, of course, as you, many of you know, to prevent him from calling his allies as witnesses at his own trial in England. They thus vividly demonstrated an ability to invoke general liberties ostensibly guaranteed by Magna Carta, while at the same time depriving someone of a fair hearing. As Ian has mentioned, the Great Charter's general standing at the time was demonstrated by the manner in which Catholics who aspired to political reform also invoked it. In 1642, the first General Assembly of the Confederation of Kilkenny, in which the lawyers Patrick Darcy and Nicholas Plunkett played key roles, professed to receive Magna Carta and the Common and Statute Law of England in all points not contrary to the Roman Catholic religion. Interesting how um, when that uh, 1351 Statute of Kilkenny reference was quoted earlier by Ian, there's no such qualification. The bishops didn't refer to Magna Carta insofar as it was compatible with uh, the church's teaching. But by, of course, 1641, there were more than one way to dice the Magna Carta on this island. And as Coleman has just now explained, the Constitution the constitutional complexities of Magna Carta uh, were argued in a number of trials between 1620 and 1645, including that of Connor Lord Maguire, which is particularly interesting, I think, for the way it invokes it. The trials again illustrate the extent to which Magna Carta was seen in Ireland, whatever about the judgment deciding uh, the niceties, it was seen in Ireland to be a live, continuing instrument in the middle of the 17th century. Indeed, even during the dark days of Cromwellian rule in Ireland, the reforming lawyer and regicide, John Cook, could invoke Magna Carta. He did so in 1654 when he declined a judgeship in Dublin on principle because he believed that Cromwellian legal reform of the courts had not gone far enough. So whatever about that apocryphal story about the rude words spoken by Cromwell in relation to Magna Carta, there were certainly Puritans who were readily citing it and, of course, um, Cook goes on to his career as president of Munster, of which there's a wonderful description, detailed description, Toby Bernard's book, astonishing how he managed to find so much material to put together such a detailed picture. And now we meet again Audley Mervyn, who emerges into public view at the end of this period, one of the great survivors of this period. On the 11th of June 1658, he was admitted a member of the Inns of Court in Dublin, not then known as the King's Inns, needless to say, but the Inns of Court Dublin, paying the fee of a councillor at law. And here's the entry in the Black Book of King's Inns. This was ostensibly his first known legal qualification, albeit not then requiring any formal legal education. At the, rest, at the Restoration in 1660, King was back, Mervyn was appointed the King's Prime Sergeant, no doubt to the chagrin of more practised members of the Inns of Court. The following year, he became Speaker of the House of Commons. Now, thanks to both John Prendergast and Sir Anthony Hartus here, 
We've lively accounts of this not entirely likable man who had a reputation for partiality, and I won't refer, rehearse details of his life here. But the speech that he delivered in the House of Lords when presented there as Speaker of the Commons on the 11th of May 1661 was ingratiating. He referred to the King's Declaration of 1660 for settling Ireland, saying that he looked forward to it becoming the book song for thy harp, O Ireland, to be tuned into. He reminded the House of Lords just how bad things had become before the Restoration, recalling that the courts of law were shut up. He referred implicitly at this stage to Magna Carta, asserting our ancient privileges in respect to the members of the Commons being freed in our persons and goods from all arrests and enjoying liberty and freedom of speech. But Mervyn and others were fast becoming dismayed by the manner in which a new court of claims, sitting over here at King's Inns, was, was determining what forfeited lands should be returned to Catholics and what not. In verses antagonistic to the native Irish, a near-contemporary writer dubbed the Court of Claims the Court of Clamper, this last word clamper being an Iberno-English word term based on the Irish word for deceitful wrangling. The verses entitled Purgatorium Hibernicum were written in a stage Irish style that mocked the manner of speaking of those who'd been losing both power and land to a new Protestant order. The Irish Manuscript Commission have published a wonderful version of it. The Irish Parliament, of course, being controlled by Protestants, now passed legislation that was intended to stop the Court of Claims hemorrhaging lands that it regarded as rightly the property of Protestants. The principal instrument of their intended salvation was the Irish Act of Settlement of 1662. And it was this important document that Mervyn so notably dubbed the Irish Magna Carta. He did so when, on behalf of the House of Commons on the 13th of February 1663, he delivered himself of a long set of opinions to the Duke of Ormond, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Mervyn's speech on this occasion, 1663, was quite different in tone from the ingratiating one that he had delivered to the Lords on his appointment as Speaker of the Commons in 1661. And the King found this speech of 1663 quite impertinent. Mervyn didn't mince words. For the alarm that Hannibal is at the gates is hot throughout the Protestant plantations, he said. And he compared the current process in the Court of Claims to a game of cards. Having beggared themselves to improve lands freely granted to the English, Protestants now risked their families being exposed to mockery and misery, and this being all done under the pretense of severe justice. Demanding in effect that the king hold the line for settlers, he proclaimed... We enjoy the benefit of many good and wholesome laws, but the act of settlement is the law of laws. It's the Magna Carta Hiberniae. That is the apple of the eye and must be printed with this motto, Nemo me impune laches, that no one touches me without danger. Describing the act of settlement 1662 as the Magna Carta Hiberniae, or Irish Magna Carta, Mervyn went on to style it also the touchstone of pure or adulterate expositions. He concluded, the law saith, I love, I love that expression, by the way, the touchstone of pure or adulterate expositions in respect to the use of the Magna Carta, right down to what we saw at the British Library and its proclamation of the commemoration of 800 years of democracy. It's a useful document to cite in all kinds of ways. Merva concluded, the law saith, all hail Protestants of Ireland. 
But the, if the execution be dissonant, we are crucified under a glorious inscription of mockery. The execution of the law is the soul of the law. Edward Borlese would soon deem Mervyn's address an excellent speech. Orrery wrote to Clarendon that the House of Commons wished that no further alteration should be made in the Declaration of 1660, which was given effect by Irish Protestants in the Act of 1662, and which Orrery now said they consider as their new Magna Carta. By the way, one of those who succeeded and regained their land soon after the Restoration um, was the wife uh, and, and also the son of John Taylor of Swords, and I think it was Ian was probably thinking of, of, of him uh, earlier because this, in fact, was the person who was described as wholly addicted to the study of law in so much as he was commonly known by the name of Magna Carta. The barrister, he appears to be the same John Taylor who had served on committees of the House of Commons alongside Audley Mervyn and Patrick Darcy. During 1666, there was an ingenious invocation of the original Magna Carta, it arose when the Lord Lieutenant and Council in Ireland petitioned against a British Act of Parliament to prohibit the importation of Irish cattle into England. They wrote that Ireland is a country generally proper only for breeding and grazing cattle. They warned that the proposed measure, if passed, would reduce people in Ireland to such a condition as not to hold the wanted correspondence and traffic with England, nor to send their youth thither to be trained up in the universities or inns of court, the want whereof may occasion the relapsing of too many of this people into barbarism. Their memorandum's concluding flourish was this. It's humbly offered to His Majesty, whether it be not against Magna Carta and common right to prevent Englishmen, which His, Irish, which his Majesty's Irish subjects are, from having freedom of English markets, and whether it is just or equal to deny to them what is granted to Scotland. In 1792, echoing Audley Mervyn, Hervey Morris, the second Viscount Mount Morris, and nephew of Speaker John Ponsonby, asserted that the Act of Settlement and related Act of Explanation passed in the 1660s, 130 years earlier, quote, are the great landmarks, the Magna Carta of the property of Ireland, from whence almost all the landlords in the kingdom derived their property. Four decades later, William Cook Taylor similarly described settlement of 1662 and its related instruments as the Magna Carta. Taylor was a prolific author and descendant of that regicide John Cook who had cited Magna Carta when refusing a seat on the bench in Dublin. In 1831, he wrote of the acts of settlement and explanation that their importance was not overrated by Sir Audley Mervyn when in February 1663 he had called them the Magna Carta of Irish Protestants. Taylor conceded that the claims of Protestants who had come into possession of confiscated lands by 1660 were not founded on what he termed strict justice, but he pointed out that Irish Protestants in the 1660s had dreaded attempts to recover those lands. Indeed, Taylor now pointedly observed that this dread of resumption existed within our own memory, now, given that Taylor himself was only born in 1800, he perhaps had in mind stories that he'd heard from his elders about the rebellion of the United Irishmen in 1798 and its implications for the ascendancy had that rebellion succeeded. Taylor, a liberal, thought that the acts of settlement and explanation had had no foundation in justice. 
Nevertheless, he concluded that the wise dispensation of providence in this instance, as in countless others, produced universal good from partial evil. Ireland alone paid the price by which European liberties were purchased. So hard luck, Ireland. It might seem from reading Taylor that the very survival of religious freedom across Europe had depended on the Irish land settlement. On such a reading, Audley Mervyn might have gone further in 1663 and justly described the acts of settlement and explanation not only as the Magna Charta of Irish Protestants, but also as the Magna Carta of Europe. It has been written that Magna Carta came to have a special mythical quality in England from the end of the 16th century. Its emotional association with post-Restoration Irish Protestants is evident not only from Audley Mervyn's florid speech of 1663, but also from the lyrics of a song that had become widely known by the time of the Battle of the Boyne. This was Lily Bolero. The singing of Lily Bolero is said to have played a significant role in eroding public support for King James II. Its satirical, taunting lyrics, somewhat similar in style to those of the Purgatorium Hibernicum cited above, were put to an old jig that Henry Purcell had recently arranged. The lyrics were written in 1688 by Thomas Wharton, later a Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. They satirised sentiments of the Catholic Irish then being voiced by royalist balladeers. Its opening line sets the tone. Ho, brother Tig, dost hear the decree. The ballad has its sting in the tale for King James and his Lord Deputy Richard Talbot, Earl of Tyrconnell. And there, I won't, I won't try to sing it for you. There was an old prophecy found in a bog, Ireland shall be ruled by an ass and a dog. And now this prophecy has come to pass, for Talbot's the dog and James is the ass. And you can see the joke there on the name of Talbot and the dog from what I said earlier. But some other verses of the song indicate clearly the extent to which Magna Carta was then invoked as a badge of Irish Protestantism, notwithstanding its origins long before the Reformation. Though by my soul the English do prate, the law's on their side, and Christ knows what. But if dispensation do come from the Pope, we'll hang Magna Carta and them in a rope. Of course, some of you will be familiar with this delightful tune in another context. It's played to this day by orange bands, although with different lyrics and known as the Protestant Boys. And remarkably, a version of it also serves as the signature tune of the British uh, World Service. Such was the song's significance in Ireland under the Stuarts that Bagwell equated its effect to that of the marriage of Figaro in France before the French Revolution and to that of John Brown's march in the American Civil War. It was said that 40,000 copies were circulated by the, end of the 18, by the end of the 1680s and that the taking of Carrick Fergus and the crossing of the Boyne were accompanied by the playing of Lily Bolero. Nevertheless, the Magna Carta of 12... 15, came to be regarded not only by orange men but also by many other Irish people as what James Joyce in a lecture in Trieste in 1907 called the first chapter in modern liberty. Joyce harshly lamented that the Irish barons, cunningly divided by the politics of the foreigner, let off steam in puerile fights between themselves, consuming the vitality of the country with civil wars while their brothers across St. George's Channel forced King John to sign the Magna Carta, the first chapter on modern liberty on the fields of Ronomy. It's beyond the scope of this paper to trace how or why Irishmen of various hues continued to invoke the Magna Carta into and throughout the 18th century. 
They were encouraged, no doubt, by the publication of William Blackstone's signal critical edition of the original text in 1759, and by a commentary on Magna Carta by Francis Stoughton Sullivan, the late Professor of Law at the University of Dublin, published in 1772. Those Irishmen who invoked the Great Charter in the late 18th century included Edmund Burke, and a well-known sketch of him as the British Cicero, as you can see, shows him with Magna Carta in his hand. And in 1792, one John Egan, a member of the Irish Parliament and bencher of King's Inns, described the ascent of William of Orange in 1688 as our glorious revolution, that second Magna Carta. Here, apparently, was a new coinage, or a new Irish Magna Carta. Bencher Egan, about the same time, acquired an interest in lands at Constitution Hill. The lands he had were one of two plots of ground. The bencher soon afterwards, happily, for Egan especially, decided to purchase for their new premises. He benefited from what another member of King's Inns would call in 1859 a monstrous breach of trust. Egan may also have used his influence as a bencher in respect to the contemporary choice of scenes for the entablatures that today grace the facade of King's Inns on Constitution Hill, and one of which, as we saw, was taught somehow by a Dublin historian to refer to Magna Carta. Finally, if I may, mention just two things in respect to Catholics and nationalists who cast a rather cold eye on Magna Carta. Now, we'll hear lots about Daniel O'Connell tomorrow, but in 1813, he referred to the imprisoned proprietor of the scurrilous Irish magazine, Walter Cox, and claimed that it was almost enough to drive Cox insane to hear Attorney General William Sauron eulogise the great Charter of Liberty when the courts had refused Wattie Cox its benefits. I should indeed, said O'Connell, prefer seeing the principles of that great charter called into practical effect to hearing any palinode, however beautiful, said or sung on its merits. And in 1917, Arthur Griffith's nationality paper observed that the government dispensed with the supposed protections of Magna Carta whenever it suited them. He said... Then the Great War came, and in the twinkling of an eye, Magna Carta, habeas corpus, and the Bill of Rights disappeared in a puff of smoke. The defence of the Relim Act became the new British Constitution. Of course, the new Irish state would soon adopt its own touchstone of pure or adulterate expositions, to borrow Audley Murphy's phrase, and assessing the extent to which those constitutions replicated or duplicated or were informed by Magna Carta is another day's work, and that day will be tomorrow. Thank you very much.